So, <laughs> is Sears courting me with song? Well, have I got songs for them. We'll be in the Song of Solomon today. So even though that may be to them the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon is actually the song that God says he wants to sing to you. <laughs> it's okay. I can get through this. This may very well have been I rarely use my phone, but I'm going to because I captured something on it. And so let me share this with you. This may, may very well have been the pennings of Solomon, we don't know, early before the text that we will be reading. So pay attention to all the girls I've loved before who traveled in and out my door. I'm glad they came along. I dedicate this song to all the girls I've loved before. You're going, Solomon? Maybe. To all the girls I once caressed, and may I say, I've held the best. <laughs> For helping me to grow. I owe a lot, I know, to all the girls I've loved before. The winds of change are always blowing. <laughs> and every time I tried to stay, the winds of change continued blowing, and they just carried me away. <sighs> to all the girls who shared my life, who now are someone else's wife, <laughs> I'm glad they came along. <laughs> I dedicate this song to all the girls I've loved before, to all the girls who cared for me, who filled my nights with ecstasy, and I think he closed off, which I can't be certain of, with, oy vey, what have I done? Maybe we know who did it. That was 1984. Julio Iglesias paired up with his rock star friend, Willie Nelson. And it happened to be a big hit. Not that I think by any means it was really a great song at all, but it did capture a sentiment that, believe it or not, a culture thought was pretty cool. Wow, I'm being acknowledged for going in and out his door. Cool. And guys going, that's awesome, in and out my door. Wow, I must be exceptional. And so this is the thing about culture, and it's the reason why we need to be cultured in the scriptures. Solomon has a great contrasting disposition. And the pinnacles of piety being one who had been ordained and loved by God from the very beginning. And yet one who fell into the Julio Iglesias, Willie Nelson mentality. And it really didn't work. One of the things that we see in Ecclesiastes is he acknowledged, a good portion of my life has been in vanity. Somebody's going to take my spot. Women in and out of my life. There's nothing more than I can do to satisfy my cravings. All of these things are those things that, if you would, are penned in Ecclesiastes till he gets to the end. So then, with the Song of Solomon, or known as well as the Song of Songs, the importance in why I'm bringing it up, and I can only bring up a portion of it, is it really is about the romance of love. So before, I believe in the past couple of sessions, on Valentine's Day, I think it was called the heart of love. The second week, which was last week, love has a heart. And then today, love is a song. 
And God would say it's a song of songs. I concluded last week's sermon with the song that captured, in my opinion, the love of God in creation, fashioning for himself and for someone, a wife. But he didn't start there. It started with God's heart to create something so special that he wanted to capstone it with someone so special. And yet someone so special that he was able to articulate saying, everything that I've done is good, but it's not good that this guy is alone. So the song that you heard was penned over 25 years ago. Part of what you also saw was a just a little bit of sentiment squeaking out of my voice. Because I said that musicals touch me and poetry touches me. And so when you read this poem, you're going to go, I'm not sure if that touches me. It will. The component parts of the Song of Solomon ought to touch you. Because God is actually bringing himself into a narration of the passion of love. What we would say is the theme of the Song of Songs. What they used back then, which was very inspirational, were metaphors and observations of nature. When you look at nature, it's rather um, complicated. When you look into marriage, you're going, it's a jungle. <laughs> it's opposite. The animals do fine in the jungle. Marriages all of a sudden become a jungle. We don't do so fine. So they understood the power of the metaphor of using creation, which God says in Romans chapter 1, 19, what you see out there are displays articulated in all of my manifest creativity to bring you invisible attributes and power to persuade you that there is none like me. And it's pretty incredible. I've never yet seen animals likened to one another marching down avenues, picketing. They just live life pretty simple. Oh, these are my people. Those are not my people, but I'm going to respect where they're at, and I'm going to run if I need to. I'll defend when I must. Pretty simple. God is distinguishing in the Song of Solomon what, from a pictorial presentation, is an ideal. And to let you know, it's not about Solomon in his, per se, early years. We're not exactly sure when the inspiration came in terms of penning it. But what we do know is that it's a picture of a great king who loved someone who felt unworthy to be loved. The reason that that's important is because that's what speaks really of us. We have no reason to be justified being loved by a God who claims us as his bride because we're going, I'm not that kind of girl. <laughs> I've done things wrong. I get things wrong. I'm not that kind of guy. I've been more like Solomon. So God cuts through with poetry to bring himself into the pictorial, but he also allows there to be a connection with the human saying, and this is the way love ought to look poetically and musically. And it really is going to be a super stage filled with a myriad of images that actually boast entirely of me, the way that I've worked things out, the way that I want things done, the tensions that it creates, the mystery that is yet to be revealed. That's what this is about. There is a need for revival in our marriages. And there is also a need for hope in the younger generation. You're not in the generation that I have been parenting over. You're not the war babies 
That was the World War II generation. I was a war baby. Dad came home from Korea and mom got two for the price of one. And I'm one of the last ones of the war babies. So your generation is at war with culture. To that degree, I can agree. But this is both inspiring those who, like me, are married, having children, raising them up, and these children being confronted by a culture that is at war with them. How is it that there's footing? And how is it that they can say, is it really worth it? From the outcome, from the battlefield injuries, is it really worth it? And God would say, absolutely, it's worth it. Because it's a picture of the worth that I have placed in every individual to be my bride. I don't know how it all works out. I just know there are fundamentals. When we began our teaching, we talked about the devotion of God to a world that he created and to two human beings that were divinely positioned and they were uniquely one with each other and there was no sin in their life and perfect fellowship with God until the tragic event of choice brought consequences to the world and to that institution as it was not meant to be, but what we see in the aftermath of it, it's still a great institution. There will be a calling for some to be committed and should be in their singleness to the mindset, God is whom I love, he is whom I serve. Men have a word that's coined for them, which is to be celibate and a gifting. And the women have a term coined to them to be chaste. And both of them are powerful words used for all generations. But we're all in this together. And the jungle is not in the home, it's outside. And so the Lord wants us to understand that he's given us dominion within the jungle, perhaps, of a home. And to be able to be in disposition, understanding the heart of God for love, better able to say, this is the way that God wants it done when it's done this way. It's an amazing testimony of God loving us and to the point of faithfulness bringing us to himself that's the narration let me turn there with you The characters that we see introduced here is the one recognized as the beloved. And so he's not gender neutral. He's a man. This happens to be how Solomon is coining himself and God is allowing him to pen himself as the beloved because the Lord is our beloved, and we are his. His banner over us is love. That's a quote that we will find in here. He loves us. He loves us so extraordinarily that actually within marriages we become highly disappointed going, hey, where is it? Where is the love? <laughs> You have to talk to God about that. He's not drained your capacity. You've simply been incapacitated because you haven't sought him. None of us really seek God authentically in how to love one another as he says. We believe in doctrine. We look at the scriptures. We're encouraged by the musicals. But all of a sudden, it comes down to marriage, and we're going, where is it? Man, that was a fast ceremony. Or, man, that preacher really talked me under the table. Where are we going for our honeymoon? Uh, that's kind of backlogged for about three weeks. Where's the love? 
Where are we going? We're going here for three weeks. Where's that? An obscure place in Mexico? In the summertime? It was cheap. Where's the love? <laughs> I didn't do it that way. <laughs> It's introduced as well with the subtitle, The Banquet, The Banquet of Love. We're not going to get through this text, but it's important at least to be inspired in initially what it is saying. And there's this woman that's identified as the Shulamite. So what you need to do is understand that Solomon is credited with this work, and his name means prince. Jedediah would mean on the other alternative to his name, whom God loves. David's name would mean whom loves God, lover of God, whom God loves, Jedediah. God loves this man, and this man is allowed to be perceived as the lover of a woman who is obscure to us whose name means something to the effect on the rural or urban definition, she's outside the camp. She comes in, but she's not really one of us. But on the deeper spiritual level, her name is likened to Solomon's. means woman of peace. Solomon's name literally meant a prince of peace, over peace. Why is that important as far as setting the stage as far as characters? Because Jesus is the prince of peace. He will establish peace on earth, and he begins in every household that has chosen to say, woman of peace man of peace because Jesus guaranteed that he would give us a peace that the world could not know. The problem is, is the culture says, take a piece of that first. And that's an entirely different coined word. It's what you would call a word that sounds like the other, but is not the other. And Jesus gives you the genuine peace. And the Lord is telling us in identifying these two characters that he's got a strong man and a beautiful woman, a woman who was not measured to her peers as likened to them, but kind of one of the outsiders. And the eyes of this prince was upon her, and he being a man of peace and she being a woman of peace, there was similarity. Because remember in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam was put to sleep and Eve was brought to his side and he opened his eyes, he was able to say, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Because the Lord said, I will bring somebody to you, comparable. One of the signs within the construct of even, we would say, the courtship is how's the peace going? And if you're tearing each other to pieces, that's not the peace that God has for you. But when peace settles over, and it's a very interesting thing, because sometimes we believe it can be fabricated or constructed, but it's not. It's a gifting. It's an identity marker. It's rather extraordinary. Does it mean your life will be perpetuated in peace that has no challenges? Absolutely not. Because love is tested, it will also, in the same context, be forced to deal with difficult situations which tear at you, pull you apart. And you must summon the attribute of love, which is peace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law written against these things, meaning there's nothing that will restrict or bind them from being the expression of God for his bride, you and I. We in a marriage are husbands and wives. We are brides and bridegrooms. We are pictures of the church and of Jesus. We talked about that last week, that it can be offensive 
when women have to say, huh, he's over me, he's my head, even as Christ is head of the church, so too husbands are over their wives. Be subject to men over my dead body. Actually, that may be true, but not literally, spiritually. Why? That peace might be obtained. In the Hebrew, the name of Adam was Ish, and the woman became Isha, man, and of man. Ish and Isha were their Hebraic names. We have interpreted as Adam and Eve, distinguishing them. I know you're going to, if this is as far as you've gotten right now in the love story, this is a yawner. <laughs> it's okay. That's called resting in the Lord. That's what they had to deal with. She came along and found a sleepy man. His eyes were opened. And the work that God did as he rested was a great work. But the narration here identifies a picture of characters that God says are special. And so God wants us to know that as he's positioned us uniquely with somebody, we are very special. We're strong. We are sensitive. We're a combination of both. We are highly spiritual. We are very personable. And we at the same time are mysteriously physical. How does that work out? Two unique people, two distinct beings operating as one, as pleases the Lord, as was designed by God. Love is a song. This is a song. Then why don't you sing it? Because sometimes songs are marinated in meditation. Every note has a special place for a word and how it's sung. And I just feel that in this, to identify these characters helps us to identify biblical principles. Oh, that peace would be in the relationships continually in the households that God has given to us. And this isn't by any means denigrating where any of us are at because we have a tension of being quite human having things needing to be worked on in our lives. Every person here in a marriage, in a relationship, will have things worked on that it might be worked out of you, that more of God can be imparted to you, that the spiritual giftings and the fruits of the Spirit are more evident upon you. And if you trust God and believe God, you will see Him manifest that without any mechanics in which you can boast only the resignation, Lord, as you are peace, as you are the great Ish, and I am Isha, as you are Adam and I, your bride, am Eve, one with you, one with my companion, my companion one with me, uniquely identifying. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And so the symphony is played. It begins to fade in the background, and the characters now come in. And this is a declaration that is made by the woman. The reason that that's special is it tells us that something has gone on within her heart. Her heart beats for this image of ultimately satisfaction and completion. The man was one that needed to be completed, but the woman made in his image, they both in the likeness of God, are completing one another. It's not one being completed exclusively by the one, it's both of them being completed by each other. And therefore, her mind thinks, and this is what is happening. Her heart beats, her mind thinks, and her mouth is going to be able to speak 
the oracles of romance. She's enraptured with the image of her completion. And she is one that does not believe that in his eyes, she is worthy. One of the things that we know about this book is this actually is declaring the covenantal relationship that has yet to be consummated. There has been a pledge in what they know of each other, and they're trying to work that out in the mechanics of what unfolds in discoveries about themselves and the mysteries about one another. But very often we say, well, that's the man's job. The woman is being highlighted here as a voice of great passion, great, what, admiration for whom she has set her heart on. As an elementary teacher, I never had to break up guys fighting over girls. I had to break up girls fighting over guys. Wait a minute, hold on, what, what, hold on. <laughs> Not worth getting detention over, I know him. <laughs> he can't throw the football. He likes mud. He's not into those things that you like. So I never had to deal with guys in love with little girls. Little girls are wired to begin moving in an expressive directive from God that their eyes are set upon a man. Why? Because they're highly spiritual. It is true. And the only deviation that is cultural and the... Divisor of that is the devil. He's gotten a foothold where it doesn't belong in the hearts and the homes. But by vast majority, the little girls are looking up to young men. And young men are still trying to name animals. You stood, you ostrich, you turkey and other derogatory animal names that I shall not go into. There's a refinement is what I'm saying that is being declared here, and it shouldn't be ignored. This Shulamite woman literally is being transformed by the attention and adoration of this great king who could have had all the girls in the world. But he says, you are mine. Where does it say that? We only obtain a clue from what she's saying now. And in the next verses, it says, your love is better than wine. What does that mean? We're not talking about alcohol content here. It's really important to understand there's imagery and there needs to be no apology for it. Wine is associated pictorially as joy. You exceed the limits of joy and you move into another realm that God had no intention for you to get burned out on or become a buffoon in. Anyone knows that that speaks of intoxication. God says what this is pictorially speaks of a process that has some agony to it. The reason that wine is a perfect picture of joy is because there is a crushing that must be required in order for the pulp of that fruit, the flesh of that grape, to be literally busted open that it, merging with the juice hidden on the inside, is mingled with the yeast on the outside. Every skin of grape has a particle or two of yeast. Sometimes it looks like a dusting. And others, it's microscopic. You can't see it. But when that yeast gets introduced to the meat and to the blood, the juice, it begins the process of what we would say is forming the wine. 
And it's a process that vintners take great pride in and they take great intellect and knowing. And it is a process that if done well, it will receive the raves of people that know the quality of the wine and the joy of tasting the quality of the wine. But in scriptures, it is intended to be a picture of joy, but joy that comes in a process of willingly being crushed. Jesus willingly was crushed. His flesh mingled with the blood and the yeast. In this case, it would be both of the divinity and of the humanity of his life. And the church would be birthed in the next chapters when we look into Acts and we see love. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better, better than wine. Where we boast in a product, she boasts in a person. She is able to accentuate the symbolism of joy, but she looks at the person who was able to give it, and she highlights it. The fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away, she says. And this is the heart of the woman, to be drawn away. And the Lord does that. That's why when you look at the remarkable work of the church, we've all been drawn away from the other group of maidens that we were with or the merry men that we hung out with. We've been drawn away into a love relationship with God. And it's better than wine. It's not disputing the symbolism of the joy of wine. It's just better. Anyone knows you can only drink so much of wine. Anyone knows that those who strive to be drunk on love will receive in themselves the penalty of that. But to drink of love in the manner by which God has identified himself as the lover of our soul is to be what we have coined as a term which marks love, ecstasy. But it's always temporal here. It's always meant to point to the eternal. No woman, no man can ever be satisfied in ecstasy on this earth. It's always meant to point to the greater reality of what heaven will be like. Everything is temporal. You try to make anything eternal or permanent in the area of joy or ecstasy, you have found yourself in an addictive state because it is God who loves us so completely that whatever we may savor that is joy in the moment is truly enough to sustain us for the next day, for the next encounter. This is a very passionate beginning right now. It's meant to bring us right to the crux of the matter. Attention that she has given to him, adoration that she has for him, and in the Italian word, amore. All of the resources and the expressions of love being considered for this, her bridegroom, her man in shining armor. Draw me away. Take me away from every other distraction and priority. Take me away even from what perhaps are those things that are not bad, but they are not better than you. That's why God is who he is and why every man and every woman comes to the point of being able to say, I love him. We try that here, right? It's becoming a very common word, and the reason that that's happening is the Lord is drawing people to himself, and so we're getting comfortable with the word Love. I think it's a good word to be comfortable with. However, if it moves in a direction of being 
love dominant rather than God ordained, it becomes a problem. But the freedom by which men even say they love one another or we love each other, it's, it's very radical. And I believe it is a calling of the spirit. We sometimes find ourselves flattered when it's said, but I really believe it's a calling of the spirit to love God. It's God just echoing his heart through the voice of his bride, draw me near, love you. Oh, you're better than wine. At times we think it's, as the culture has said, the bromance. No, it's not. I, never, I don't know who invented that word. What I want and what I believe God wants is a romance with him that gets translated in the beauty and distinction of a romance with someone very special. Kiss in both Hebrew and in Greek have a very fascinating concept, and it is of worship. In the Hebrew, the word is nashe, close as I can get it, to kiss and smell with touch. This is that word when she says, let him kiss me. Kiss and smell with touch. That's why when we refer to the time in which Jesus was anointed, both on his head and on his feet, we refer to it as the fragrance of the Lord. And it's romantic language. It's not simply a carnal expression. It relates to an act of worship that embodies the kiss, and the kiss in particular with smell, and the kiss in particular with touch. God is not without tactile sensitivities. He knows exactly what touch means to us. It's why a hug is good. It's why when Hershey's came out with the hug, they were the number one selling chocolate <laughs> for a season in America. I want to be hugged. I'm just going to eat chocolates and get my hug. And they striped it and they made it distinct because love wasn't available. So here's a hug. I liked the hugs, but only when they started including the hugs with almonds. And then when they knew that somebody like me also wanted a hug with dark chocolate. I needed to have something just a little bit more than the Hershey hug. But people went crazy for them because the name was so much identifying what they wanted to taste of. The expression that if it's got to be a candy company that thinks of me, then <laughs> bring on the hugs. And I'll take some of them and some more of that. And I'm going to just eat a bag full of almonds with it too. Love desires to be satisfied. God teases us in that way. Your fragrance, oh, your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. See, as exclusive as this relationship is intended to portray, it's also inclusive of those who love him too. We might say, hey, isn't that the competition of the Shulamite? Competition, God has no problem with that. That helps people figure out what they're really after. Helps people figure out actually what God wants. The competition that the stars face, all of the movie stars, that would be horrendous. Couldn't walk out your door. Even though we look and we think, that'd be so cool to be chased by a hundred women. No, it wouldn't. All you have to do is fall and you're trampled. There's nothing cool about it. That's ugly. I put these clothes on. I don't want them torn off. What are you doing? Every star that's found themselves idolized by women find themselves no longer interested in that whole scene. They run from it. And the same would be true about women who have found themselves idolized. These women can represent the choir, those who say, like we do, oh, Jesus is the best. 
It says that in this, the virgins love you, draw me away. We all love you, Lord. Draw us away, draw me away. Lord, make me distinct among those who also love you. Have you ever asked that, Lord? I want to be distinct among those whom you love. I have no jealousy over those whom you love. But if I may, would you distinguish me? Would you in my heart make me distinguished? You who are my beloved, me, a Shulamite, don't necessarily feel that I fit in like they do. Everybody seemingly is in spirit, in body, personality, talents and gifts. They're more attractive than me. Lord, as a Shulamite, draw me, distinguish me. That's what's really being said here in honesty. And in the same context, this is what wives and husbands ought to know, is this beautiful tension of attention, of desire, adoration, amore, that comes in the heartbeat, that comes in the intellect of rethinking things, that comes in the discipline of voicing things, and voicing things at the right time and the right way. Have you ever... <laughs> Have you ever blown a date night by bad timing? Huh, I shouldn't have said that. Huh, shouldn't have done that. And the next thing you know, you're cuddling up with one of the beasts of the forest named Fluffy or Ralphie or Chloe. You chose poorly. <laughs> God allows that to be something that draws us to him. <laughs> okay, Lord. I got to get this refigured, blew it with my Shulamite date night. The Daughters of Jerusalem is the subtitle, We Will Run After You. And what the Lord is picturing right now is that abandonment to just go with everything that you've got to be on that path to have that man in your life. The one man? Well, no, in this case, this is the distinguish. It's pointing to a great man. It's pointing to our Jesus, to be on the run for him, not on the loose, but on the run to pursue him. It may also imply that the choice of this Shulamite and what those daughters of Jerusalem see and the attention that he's giving her is worthy to run after as well. Really? You got his attention? Wow. We're running after you to see how you did that. We're going to watch closely your relationship that we might have as well a favor of love and passion in our future. We will be glad and rejoice in you. They come into agreement in the song of course. That's why we have marriage ceremonies. We're going to rejoice and be glad in you. And it's why very often tears are easy to be shed at weddings, both brides and grooms and groomsmen and bridesmaids, maids of honor, grandmas, grandpas, husbands, wives, the fathers and mothers, the children. Why? Because the Lord touches our heart when we come in, not to a civil ceremony, but a spiritual ceremony. I make very good distinction. I'm not a civil magistrate. I will not marry you simply on the convenience of what you need to want or have done. I will take you through the scriptures and I will address the things that will encourage you on what you need to do to be married and to have a successful marriage. If you want expeditious, go to Nevada. Go to the Elvis Presley Wedding Chapel. They'll be glad to do it. Go to the courthouse in Curry. They'll be glad to do it. But isn't it better that glad is what God's desire is to do it? It's a beautiful poem. We will remember your love more than wine. They're catching it. The wine of the Spirit, the joy. Rightly, the Shulamite says, do they love you? This woman's able to acknowledge that he's an extraordinary man. Rightly, do they love you? What can I say? 
which is very interesting at times because there are in the times and circles admiration for husbands and wives. That's not a bad thing. It's saying that rightly so. It happens. Spirit-filled men, spirit-filled women, rightly so, can be admired. It's a signature of what God has done in their lives, inspiring others. The only danger is when that goes to your head and when you lose the head and the heart that you have for that whom you have committed to. But I truly believe that, you know, even for me, I, I, I truly am one that has enjoyed the ability for my wife to be right center of the aisle. She is a joy for me to be with when she serves my brothers in the Lord and my sisters in the faith, when she hosts families. Um, we need to applaud husbands and wives, wives and husbands together in what they do and how they do it. This speaks of that. Closing five, what she thinks of herself, contrary to what her beloved thinks of her. I am dark, but lovely. I have some things to consider. She's evaluating, though, what then would have been a mark against her. We don't do suntan. We do pale skin. That's what the guys like. They like the powder. You're dark. And your darkness isn't because of complexion. You've been burned. You're really burned. You're doing stuff that is industrial. What we discover is that she's an industrial shepherdess. Her brothers sent her out into the field to do their work. So she doesn't get to foof it up and have tea parties in Jerusalem. She's chasing and leading sheep and protecting them. And what the Lord is saying is that the industry, that there's an industry in beauty, and it's a remarkable combination of both when it's done well and her eyes are upon her beloved. They can't see much in her. She doesn't feel necessarily much about herself, but the eyes of her beloved are upon her. It's irrefutable. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Meaning that in where she was forced and obligated, she was willing to let go of the upkeep of that which was her responsibility to tend what was not her responsibility. And this is the sacrifice of one who truly is in love with God. It takes a second place, even though your place may not get the tending. And by the way, that's a good idea about marriage. There are many things that we want to do for ourselves, but the industry of marriage and the necessity to make a home require at times those things to be set aside and apart for what is required of us by others. It's a wonderful picture, actually. And the Lord's the only one that's able to make those priorities be, a, be an overflow and a mark of passion and of romance. He's the only one that can do it. The Shulamite felt that she was not like the other girls, the other maidens. But Solomon felt quite differently about her. She qualifies herself as lovely but disqualified in terms of the full package. We're having challenges in our culture today because women are feeling disqualified as the full package. They're having to be primed and pumped up in only some attributes. But I'm glad to see that there is a generation that's saying, I'm lovely and I'm also dark. I'm different because 
I have a different perspective on my life, the priorities of my life, the reason that I'm alive. I love God because he first loved me. I look forward to marriage, not simply companionship, not simply convenience of hookups. I want to be with somebody the rest of my life. Because if it's even just a tiny shadow of what the Lord has done in the illumination of me about him, I'll take that little shadow. I'll take that little ray of light because I know that he's the one that can multiply it. I want to be in a movie. I want to be in a musical. I want to sing and write songs for God. I want to be responsible for the fruit of love, which is children. I want to have a quiver full. I want to take as many as God has put within my sphere of influence to heaven with me in the context of having a relationship with a strong God who's magnificent, one who ought not be shunned, one who should be followed, and not be questioned about, does he really love me? He loves you. You're his bride. It started off, though, the story started off with the pitter-patter and the heart and the vision of the woman. That's why your hearts beat for God. That's why the Lord allows the heartbeat of the woman to remain very much a predictable component part of echoing his heart for his bride. When little girls are in pursuit of that one little guy in the playground, God's using them as a statement about his bride. They've been wired for love, and God has done that. And therefore, it's a lovely, beautiful story of what God wants and is highly complimented in this act of worship through love, to turn, to kiss, to kiss and smell and touch. The Greek connotates almost, now do it again. The Greek connotates, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. That's why date night has become popular. Not necessarily always predictable, but it's a try. <laughs>